Handle on the News. Handle on the News! And I want you to know, Bill Handel, that I pray for you because I love God's chosen people. God bless. Bye. And now, here's Bill Handel. Oh, if they could see the look on your face as you were listening to that woman. I know. People pray for me. I really like it when uh, there are homeless people or uh, people that are begging for money who appear to be totally, you know, able, able-bodied. And, uh, hey, do you have any change? No. Well, God bless you. And I respond with, no, no, God bless you. You're still not getting any money. These are able-bodied, though. I'll tell you what else, what else I like to do. Oh, no. Hey, and that is, hey, mister, you have any change? I will uh, jingle my pockets with, a, with a, literally a pocket full of change and said, yes, I have a pocket full of change. You're still not getting any money. Wayne, you might want to scoot away from him before the lightning hits. I'm, fi- I'm, fi- I'm, the, I'm on the other side of the console. I think I'll be all right. Able-bodied. And I want to have a good seat to see it happen. Able-bodied. <laughs> Although, how many of them How do you right? know? Are they doing can, burpees it, while they're no, uh, panhandling? Yeah, that's very funny, actually. No, they just appear, and I, I don't know if, uh, I have no idea if they're mentally ill. I have no, I mean, I have no idea. I just, it's, an opportunity to be a complete jerk is not something to be passed up lightly. All right, good morning, Jennifer Jones-Lee. Hi, Handel. And uh, Wayne Resnick. Is that your quote or is that the Dalai Lama? <laughs> good morning. Good morning. That's actually very funny. Uh, Alex, good morning. Morning. And uh, John. Good morning. All right, we're all here. Oh, uh, today, uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, I uh, do, too. I do uh, Armenian Genocide Day. I uh, always remember that. And Holocaust Remembrance, uh, Remembrance Day. Uh, always do that. And uh, the story of my dad, who's a Holocaust survivor, and I haven't done that in a while, and people have asked uh, over and over again, would you please replay the story of your dad? It's an interview with your dad, right? Uh, no, no. It's just oh. me. No, it's just me doing a story of my dad. Uh, my father had a very, very difficult time doing things like speaking English, being understood, uh, being lucid. And we're talking about when he was in his 30s. Okay, we're not talking about, matter of fact, he was sharp as a tack. Literally to the moment he died, he was uh, right there. In any way, in any case, uh, it's going to be a super segment, and we're going to do it at 8.30 when we normally do Handle on the Law. We're going to move Handle on the Law to 9 o'clock, late edition. Or Handle on the News. Handle please. on the News, I'm sorry. Uh, handle on the News, late edition. And uh, we are uh, going to do that story. And I know that uh, Jennifer hasn't heard that story. There no. are a lot of people that are new to the show who have tuned in. And even people who have heard the story before ask Will you replay the story? It really is uh, a fascinating story. But anybody who survived the Holocaust has a movie in them. Anybody. It, it doesn't matter. And also, we have a success from scratch. Let me tell you, if you feel less than, I guarantee you, you will feel a lot less than after hearing uh, the success from scratch story that I'm going to share with you. It's an interview. Oh, Yeah. Total intimidation. I mean, total. All right. Uh, well, I'll share that with you at uh, 8 o'clock. All right. Uh, other than that, there's <laughs> a busy news day. Uh, a shocker ever since uh, the president became the president, right? All right, guys. Uh, let's do it. Lead story. California. Well, 
Governor Jerry Brown has agreed to send the 400 troops uh, to the border, 400 National Guard troops. And he has written a letter, though, to the Trump administration saying, okay, here are the terms. Exactly what your terms were. Huh? Damn it. We're going to do exactly what you said. Come on. Really? And I mean in no uncertain terms. Let's, let me be clear. We are going to follow your requirements. <laughs> but he wrote it in a way that made it sound like. I know. These, I'm go, only going to give you these troops if you go by what I say, which is exactly, exactly what, what you said. I know. Crazy. I, That's I know. him threading the needle because he knows he'll get flack from some people yep. for sending anybody. That's exactly what I and said. And this right. is his way of trying to make it palatable right. because it looks like a defiance. Right. Uh, not but a mission, it's not. Not a mission to build a new wall. Uh no, that President was never, never part of it. That. Right. right. Uh, not a mission to round up women and children. Oh, never boy. part no. of it. Uh, or detain people escaping violence and seeking a better life. Uh, no. no. It's none of that. Uh, not enforcing federal immigration laws. Wasn't uh, that either. No. No. Uh, it isn't any of that. Uh, right. But good for him. But he wants that sweet, sweet federal money. Right. Uh, you're fired, Bill. I quit. No, you're not firing me. I quit. No, no, you're fired. No, I quit. Okay, let's just move on. Well, Mark Zuckerberg might have liked his first day of testimony, enjoyed it, I should say, a little more than he liked his second day of testimony. For something fun, this is quite a joy. You see the booster chair? The booster cushion he used day one? Oh, did he get flack for that? I did not. Yeah. Take a look at a photo. First day, booster uh Booster pillow. Second day, not so much. Oh, man. He, well, they really, the first day I felt like the Senate threw softballs at him. Yesterday, it seemed a lot more just kind of straight I down know, the middle with it. Him. Just, I mean, stupid stuff. First of all, very few of the senators or Congress people really understood Facebook. That's yes, for starters. Yes. And the, what the, especially in Congress, uh, in front of the Congressional Committee yesterday, I mean, they were just doing stupid stuff. Will you commit right now? While you're sitting there to change Facebook completely, uh, Congressman, I, I'm going to have to look at it. No, no, that's a yes or a no. I, the only thing he messed out is, uh, so let me get this right, Congressman. You want me to walk out of here and turn Facebook into a nonprofit, right? Is that what? That's basically what they were asking for. Total, total transparency. I mean, changing the very model of Facebook overnight, like right there. Now, excuse me, not overnight, in 10 seconds. I mean, again, five minutes. Yeah, I'm willing to look at it. Yes, we'll consider it. Uh, yes. I mean, what else are you supposed to do? I mean, it's like, said. you know, Robin in front of a hearing saying, will you commit to change all of the hosts here on KFI? Well, I mean, I'll I'll look at it. No, I mean right now. Yes or no? I want a new crew in the second you walk out of here. It's literally that bad. All right, we'll take a break. Uh, by the way, Robin is considering it for the morning. I just wanted to let you know. All right, uh, we're going to take a break. Coming after the break, uh, you can ch- a chance to win $1,000 brought to you by Cunning Dental. If you're missing teeth, call Cunning Dental for a free exam, 888-640-SMILE. And uh, this is uh, KFI Handle here on a uh, Thursday morning. Here's your chance to win some money. Your shot at $1,000 now. 
Text the keyword BILLS to 200-200. You'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info. Standard data and messaging rates apply. That's BILLS to 200-200. The winner is notified with a phone call, which you must answer. Like Denman in La Habra did, he won $1,000. Next chance to win, next hour. All right, uh, back we go. Oh, one quick word uh, about the Zuckerberg, uh, the uh, hearing yesterday, and uh, a lot of, uh, just a lot of attacks on Zuckerberg critique uh, that he appeared rehearsed and he followed the same, sort of the same line of uh, reasoning. Who isn't rehearsed when they're in front of Congress? Well, I would be. Of course. Who in his right mind doesn't have, especially if you have money, isn't going to spend days going through it with uh, experts, communication experts. So come on, guys. You usually have experts on how to dress. Oh, absolutely. On how to, I mean, oh, all of it. Every bit of you yeah. is rehearsed. Yeah. All right, back we go. More handle on uh, the news. Jennifer Jones, Lee, Wayne Resnick, and me. Well, finally, apparently, some information about that search warrant served on Trump's attorney is starting to leak out, and uh, they're looking for a lot more than we thought. Specifically, there's a specific reference to the president in the search warrant and information about the Access Hollywood tape with Billy Bush that was leaked, even though I'm not aware that Michael Cohen had any involvement in that situation at all. I think it's because uh, it's the first time the president is specifically mentioned uh, in uh, the Mueller investigation. But I I don't understand uh, how what's wrong about uh, the president talking to Michael Cohen to try to uh, snuff out, try to curtail any information coming out about that Access Hollywood uh, tape. I would. According, I mean, what's wrong with that? Saying, okay. hey, shut this down. According to Aaron Kaczorski, because I asked him that same question, he said they're looking for any implication that there was any bank fraud along the way. And I don't know exactly how. Or what, uh, an application to a bank I'm going to use this money for? And I guess, too, something came out this morning. There was a $30,000 payment that was apparently hush money to this random doorman who knew this rumor. But again, all right, so what? You, you're you allowed to pay for this. When I That's do ads I, for yeah. mortgages, which I've done for so many years, you can you, you can borrow money against your house for any reason, for sure. vacation, for tuition, sure. uh, for uh, remodeling your house, for paying off uh, porno stars. I have not seen that one. I'm but, changing you know. the commercials to incorporate that now. Okay. Oh. I think the issue is not that you can't pay people off to shut up. I think what they're looking at is number one, was there a pattern? And number right. two, was it in was kind. it connected? Yes, was it connected right. to the campaign, in which and case it becomes a campaign finance problem. But, but that's Michael Cohen. Right. right. Uh, it's unless it's an him. order from the president to do that. But all indications are that the president at least plausibly had nothing to do with that. Cohen certainly isn't going to turn on the president. Uh, There was uh, no signature of the president. The fact that Cohen went out and got a mortgage is even better evidence that the president had nothing to do with it. Because I can't imagine uh, the president saying to Michael Cohen, by the way, go get a mortgage on your house and you pay it personally. Donald Trump? Well, it looks like there is another Trump ally that might be another focus of an investigation. Let's make America great again. And I don't understand this one either. I don't either. The National Enquirer is being investigated because they bought uh, the uh, story from the Playboy Bunny uh, and uh, Karen McDougal. McDougal. Uh, And 
uh, they decided not to publish it. Okay? So? Is that the theory again? Is that an in-kind contribution the to the Trump campaign? In-kind contribution I'm not sticking up for any of this. I'm just saying publish. that's the theory of it. I know. I yes, mean, now because, we're really stretching. Well, if I pay money to get information for the purpose of never publishing it, and right. it also means Karen McDougal, although that didn't work out too well, is never supposed to say anything, and if it's for the purpose of helping the president get elected then it, that's the theory behind too all of this easy to argue from the national Enquirer. yeah we shut it down because my best friend is donald trump and we bought it just so he is not embarrassed having nothing to do whatsoever with the election as a matter of fact when was that when was she paid well before i think uh he would now stormy daniels was paid uh just before the election when was mcdougal uh, paid off do we know the year uh, and I'm willing to bet it was before he even announced. I do. I think it was 10 years ago or something. And I, I may be wrong on the dates, but I'm, I'm almost sure that it happened a long time ago. Uh, I don't know if this counts as irony or not, but there was a vigil for a cyclist who had been killed by a hit and run driver. And during this vigil, another car plows through the intersection and hits a pedestrian and takes off. Yeah. Uh, there's video of this incident at KFIAM640.com, keyword John and Ken. Yeah, it, it is ironic. Now, it's a horrible story, but, you know, it's certainly ironic. I guess the pedestrian not killed. Right, and we don't know the condition, but I'm assuming the, the pedestrian wasn't horribly injured because the pedestrian got up and actually hopped over uh what over to the sidewalk yeah he yeah. got out of the road yeah so all right so uh let's take a break we'll come back and uh, finish up more of uh handle on the news all right and this is uh, kfi handle here on a thursday april uh the 12th some of the big stories that we're covering here syria and the president is going to, he swears, I, I promise we're going to attack Syria. Cross my heart, hope to die. Uh, we're going to attack. Uh, one thing, there is a video up on our Instagram at Bill Handel Show. And uh, it has to do with you and some some new seasonal choices yes, that you're making today. That's correct. Uh, it's, definitely you, go look at it. Although, right. be warned, right. you don't wear it might be a bit upsetting. Right. You don't wear white after Labor Day kind at of thing. At Bill Handel's show. Right. Also, uh, coming up at 8 o'clock uh, at uh, 8.30, a uh, super segment. Instead of the news, we're doing uh, my dad's story uh, uh, in, in uh, memory of Holocaust Remembrance Day. So uh, that's coming up. Uh, and... Uh, and I had said, is it an interview? And you said, no, but he, there, is, there is audio of your dad is. speaking in the, this yeah, thing. Yeah, I'd actually forgotten. We had not, uh, first of all, I recorded this a long time ago, uh, before he died, as opposed to after he died. That's a more difficult interview to do. And he, uh, so it's been a, a while. All right, let's go back. Handle on the news. Jennifer Jones Lee, Wayne Resnick, and me. Well, the parents of a man who was fatally shot by LAPD officers will get. $3.9 million from the city. Yeah, there are a couple of things about this. Uh, this is, uh, if you remember this story, uh, he was taken to uh, the police. Uh, he, they were uh, called. Uh, and uh, It's I like think, his apartment in Torrance, right? Yeah, and then they picked him up, and uh, it was a call about someone throwing uh, glass bottles. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, they attempted to question him. He repeatedly asked why, lunged at the officer with a clenched fist, kicked the officer. Uh, a fight followed. Uh, he punched the officer, attempted to take his gun, according to the police. Uh, his mother told the officers uh, her son had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and they should have known. Man, I love this. The police should be mental health experts. Uh, I mean, this is the part that just uh, I, I have a hard time looking at and understanding. So he goes uh, a, a CAT scan. Uh, has his blood drawn, very calm during that process. And uh, then after the officers remove his handcuffs, he throws a metal stool at them, charges at them with a stool. They attempt to use a taser. He begins fighting with them. And according to the officer, uh, he then reaches for his gun. The officer says, stop or I'll shoot. Uh, Herrera keeps on going, and uh, he is then shot in the back, which is... That's the that's, that's the issue, and that's right. why the jury did not yeah. believe the police officer. Now, a couple things about jury. This is a downtown jury, and uh, you do, and the city does not ever want to go to trial with a downtown jury because of the jury pool, and this is a community that doesn't trust police officers for all kinds of reasons. And uh, this, I don't understand why the city would ever go to trial. Uh, when the police are accused of excessive force. It's just a given. O.J. Simpson, right? There was no issue that O.J. was going to walk. As a matter of fact, if they had a video of O.J. actually shooting his wife and Ron Goldman, the defense would have argued he was wearing a, what he was actually doing, we found out, is he's wearing a Mark, uh, uh, a Mark a Thurman, uh, Thurman? Thurman, a Mark Furman mask. And it was really Mark Furman. Okay. I mean, it's just, that's the city. That's downtown. All right. Uh, Uber passenger suing Uber. He lost both both of his legs in an accident. My left foot always be better than the right one. Wow. Yes. And his right foot, too. Here's what happened. He's taking an Uber drive, and the driver runs out of gas on a highway. And so this guy gets out and is helping the Uber driver move the vehicle off the road. And another car plows into him and crushes his legs so severely they had to cut him right off. So it's Uber's fault. And I guess part of the lawsuit is the driver held a gun to his head and said, you will help me push the car out of the way. Do I have that right? Mm. Oh, no, I don't have that right. He voluntarily steps out in the middle of the road. Well, the theory here is that the guy was not qualified to be an Uber driver. He ran out of gas. But again, no, I know what you're interve- saying. Intervening act. Yeah, the, the th- that's the theory, though, that he was unfit to no, operate I... an Uber vehicle and that he put him in a position to be hit by a car. No, and Uber he... says, Uber's not even getting to your point yet. They're just saying, hey, independent contractor. Right. At that point, independent contractor, which. Uh, is going to be very interesting uh, to argue because I think Uber drivers are independent contractors under so the too. law. Right. Well, that's because, all being litigated yeah, all over Uber the country. Uber doesn't control where they are, doesn't control the hours that they work. Uh, there, I mean, there's enough there, I think, where it's independent contractor. And if anywhere in there it says that your car has to be up at a certain standard or that, you know, right. safety-wise, or there may be some caveat in there about gas, honestly. Yeah, you there, never could. Know. there could. There could. So I I didn't think that this was going to come back in the news, but the dragging of Dr. David Dow, that story on the United Plane, well, that story's back in the news. And why? Well, now because the officer who was fired 
for dragging Dow off the plane has decided to sue, well, the, the city and United. Yeah. So he sues, and here's his argument. Had you properly trained me, I wouldn't have dragged Dr. Dow off the plane. And I guess part of the training is you don't drag uh, doctors off the flight. I, I love these lawsuits. I mean, it's it's crazy what you come up with. Does he have a case? No, I don't think so. I think it's for right. wrongful termination. Or I something. think. Well, maybe no. What if he gets in front of a jury? I'm not talking about the legal merits, but you get in front of a jury and they're way more mad at United Airlines right. than they are at this guy, right. and they feel like he was thrown into a situation. And what was he supposed to do right. at that point? It's the airline that made it terrible, yes. and maybe jury sympathy. They give him something. Uh, yeah, maybe. This is very uh, disgusting. The governor of Missouri now. Huge allegations of sexual misconduct. Yes. But well beyond that. Blackmail. Violence. Asking. A woman testified under oath about these things. And one thing, there's some things she testified about I don't even think we can talk about. No. no. But one thing we can. Just to give you an example. That at some point, the governor, uh, Eric Greetens, he said, hey, have you ever been you know, sexually active with anyone, including your husband? And she said, well, yes. And slapped her across her face really hard according to the lawsuit now he i don't know if you saw his press conference yesterday where he said this is all politically motivated oh here's a little cut a court of law and a jury of my peers will let every person in missouri know the truth and prove my innocence well i mean not necessarily prove innocence because uh unless that's uh, a straight out uh, even acquittal because they couldn't bring enough evidence to make the case uh because it, it it may turn out to be a he said she said and without other evidence but uh the politi- it's all when you talk about a politician whenever he's accused it's all a political attack it's not just i didn't do it i don't know why she's saying it it never happened no this is a political attack on me well yeah, okay. Yeah, well, well that's, I guess that's a, the go-to, the default. Let's go ahead and take a break, and uh, we'll come back and finish up Handle on the News. So give me one more shot tonight. I will tell you if my heart right. Hey, bye. Handle here. It is a Thursday morning, April the 12th. Uh, some of the uh, big stories that we are covering. Uh, the Michael Cohen office raid. More information coming up on that. And yes, National Guard troops from uh, California are going to the border. Mainly to uh, eat at the border grill. Because that seems to be the only thing that uh, the governor is saying. We're not going to do anything. Uh, other than what you said we can do. Or ordered us to. It's crazy stuff. All right, let's finish it up. Handle on the news with Jennifer Jones, Lee, Wayne Resnick, and me. And by the way, I just uh, got word that the uh, president just thanked Governor Brown for the troops. He tweeted, thank you, Jerry. Good move for the safety of our country. And I'm waiting for the governor to tweet back. Well, thank you, the Donald. Uh, Or you're welcome. Here we go. All right. Let's move on. And you guys are waiting for me to do story number eight, and Uh, I just lost it. I thought we were doing story number 10. Oh. We're waiting for you to destroy I'm number behind. 10. I'm sorry, you guys. Live, ra- live so, radio. Live radio. I apologize. I was reading the tweet. All right. So 
Three accusers confront Bill Cosby, and one calls him a serial rapist. The Cosby Cosby Yep. Five, uh, actually six accusers are going to be testifying against Cosby. Uh, He's going to have a tough time I mean, what they're saying about him is brutal. Yeah, there is. He's, uh, boy, has he fallen in the good graces of the American people. I mean, you had this one lady yesterday who the one who called him a serial rapist, who's just bawling on the stand. And she says, you remember, don't you, Mr. Cosby? I mean, just, I mean, it's just daggers at him one right after the other. Let's just not be surprised if there's another hung jury or an acquittal, because here's the thing. He's not on trial for assaulting that woman. No, he's only on trial for Constant, and Constant has the problem now of being portrayed like she might have tried to set him up. Right, because there is testimony that she said, uh, I'm going to get money from this guy. That was not allowed in the last trial. That is allowed in this trial. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, closer to home, the L.A. County D.A. is looking uh, at a sex crimes case against Kevin Spacey. And filed one. They're, they, the right, case was submitted you. from law enforcement on April 5th, and they're deciding whether it's enough right. of a case to proceed. And here's another uh, big-name uh, figure in our entertainment business uh, being accused of uh, sexual impropriety going back decades and continuously. So this has to do with an alleged uh, an allegation that uh, Spacey sexually assaulted uh, this TV anchor's uh, son in 2016. So it's well within the statute. That one is. This current one that they're looking into, though, they don't think probably mm. will be. But they said they're still going to go ahead and investigate because there might be something in this that has not reached the statute of limitations yet. Mm. Well, the president has signed a new measure that would help stop online sex trafficking. Well, this one, it, everybody agrees on. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And this has to do uh, a, a lot of it with Backpage.com, uh, where it's a 93-count indictment. And, of course, the government shut it down. You have Craigslist no longer uh, running personal ads. I mean, people are getting away from that big time. Well, because yeah. they are sex ads. I mean, they, I mean, it's not you. They are escort services, and uh, yeah. Would you like a, an adult massage? What the hell does that mean? We know exactly what it means. Well, this new measure basically makes it so that victims of sex trafficking can hold websites accountable for knowingly facilitating sex yeah, trafficking. Absolutely. Oh, here's a fun story. Former House Speaker John Boehner wants to be a pothead. Well, he wants to be a a pot mogul. He's joining the board of Acreage Holdings, which is a multi-state cannabis company. And he's joined by former uh, governor of Massachusetts, Bill Weld. These are both Republicans. Right. And they both have decided that it's probably very stupid that marijuana continues to be a Schedule One controlled substance. Now, this is a man who was one of the proponents of making sure cannabis stayed illegal. I mean, he was on the other side of this. And as he said, this has nothing to do with the fact that he is now making millions of dollars sitting on a board of a cannabis company. Actually, probably not millions. But, uh, you know, what do you get on a board? I don't get all that much money, but uh, still, it's uh, pretty neat. You get to fly in the cannabis plane, and those fly higher. Very nice. Very nice, Sandal. And it looks like there's been another one who uh, bites the bolt in dust. Out. Yep. 
Bolton comes in, and now we've got a third person out. We're talking about the senior national security official. Her name is Nadia Shadlow, and uh, she's the U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy. And she says she's resigning and going to leave her position at the end of the month. Now, to be fair uh, to Bolton, I mean, he obviously uh, you can accuse him of being a hawk and uh, outside of his position. You have a national security advisor coming in. Uh, would you not think he brings in his own of team? Of course he is. This right. is not controversial at all. No, he brings <laughs> in his own team. Bolton I mean, is controversial. Yes, right. good but point. But the, the change-up of his staff is, is not. not. All right, uh, coming up, uh, we have a super segment, lots to cover. National Guard, homes for the homeless in your backyard, NIMBY unraveled. Oh, great story. And then... Uh, 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 welfare and food stamps, uh, the changes. What, how is Donald Trump like Bill Clinton? That is the question. This is, aha! And Jennifer's giving the look, giving the, ha look. Yeah, I don't know where you're drawing of that Of course parallel. you are. All right, we'll come back with that. KFI AM Thursday, April 12th. This is a super segment, which means at about 20 after, I'm going to give you a chance to win $1,000. Brought to you by Cunning Dental. If you have a toothache, visit Cunning Dental for a free exam. Call 888-640-SMILE. Also, uh, a pretty special day today. It's Holocaust Remembrance Day. So we're going to replay the segment I did with uh, my dad many years ago. And I've uh, been asked to do that many times, uh, a repeat, which we're going to do. And if you have not heard it yet, it's well worth listening to. And it's his story of uh, surviving the Holocaust. And we're going to do that at 8.30. Handle on the news. Late edition is going to 9 o'clock. A, a pretty uh, special modified day. And then a success from scratch uh, coming up at 7.30. And I guarantee you, you are going to feel less than. I guarantee an intimidation. Success from scratch is at 8. Uh, oh, yeah. What did I say? 7.30. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank you. Success from scratch at 8. It really is a modified day-to-day, to say the least. All right. Now, uh, let's go through uh, some of the major stories that we're following. The governor of California has agreed to send uh, 400 National Guard troops to the border. And uh, we didn't know which way it was going to go, right? He was noncommittal. The other states said, absolutely, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, uh, border states are saying, you bet we're going to. No question about that. Uh, this was up in, in the air, whether the governor was going to uh, send our governor. You know, at first, I thought he was going to say no, like Oregon. No, thanks. Uh, we'll pass on this one. And then it turned out he was simply noncommittal. And I was thinking... Really? You know, I mean, that's that's kind of unusual. And now Governor Brown said, yeah, I'll go ahead and send 400 troops with this caveat. This will not be a mission to build a new wall, even though the federal government said that this will not be a mission to build a new wall. Uh, it will not be a mission to round up women and children or detain people escaping violence and seeking a better life. Well, there you go, because uh, the Trump administration said, uh, you send troops, 
and it will not be a mission to round up women and children or detain people escaping violence. Uh, And uh, what it's going to do is augment, according to Brown, the 400 troops will augment a current mission that fights uh, transnational crime, which is exactly what the Trump administration said. And the location of the guard personnel uh, will be dictated by needs on the ground as opposed to by needs in Wyoming. I mean, what is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Uh, The governor is walking a very fine line here. He can't be seen doing anything that supports the president or the administration. Why? Because, well, we're a sanctuary state of which the governor pushed like crazy. And therefore, since uh, the Trump administration is suing and fighting the sanctuary state issue, uh, how can we possibly send Border Patrol down south to help the Trump administration, in fact, enforce the law. In fact, people keep people out of the United States. Try to stop them at every point. Well, uh, the point is, is that uh, the governor is being asked to do nothing more than what the government wants the governor to do in the National Guard. So, and I said this this morning, this is one of those where... Uh, I tell you, you're fired. And you go, no, I'm not. I quit. Uh, No, you're actually fired. No, 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 no. I quit. Uh, It's one of those. Now, uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the secretary, uh, 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 Kirsten Nielsen, uh, tweeted, she is glad to have uh, all four border governors working with us and the U.S. National Guard to secure the border. Now, one interesting issue is... The wall itself. The National Guard, who has been twice on the border, uh, one, President Obama put, uh, I think, 1,200 National Guard at the border. And I think President Bush, uh, H.W., put down over 6,000 National Guard troops uh, because of the drug issue. Uh, The drug interdiction was just, it was going balls to the wall because the, the drugs were pouring over the border. And there was a wall issue, but it was repairing of parts of the wall. And I don't think that if uh, the feds ask for the repair, now this is going to be under the feds jurisdiction. If the feds ask for repair of uh, existing wall, I don't think that that's going to be an issue because that's not building a new wall. Certainly by law, the National Guard can't detain people can't enforce immigration policy. All it can do is offer surveillance, offer support, repair vehicles, send up drones, repair uh, high-end technology, sensors, cameras, that sort of thing that also are part of our border security. And uh, so... Uh, The Homeland Security Secretary went on to say that this partnership with governors is vital to our nation's success. And uh, one other thing in terms of the success of uh, the president, simply by talking and taking a firm stance. And uh, this is one where the president is given a lot of credit. Uh, For example, North Korea, Kim Jong-un. The argument is he has asked for a meeting 
and has agreed to a meeting and has and has admitted or has said he will talk about denuclearization, although we don't know quite what that means. There's different definitions. But that's based on the fact that uh, Donald Trump said, oh, yeah, I'm prepared to bomb the crap out of North Korea. Yeah, I don't care. I'm willing to do it. Well, and then the trade war with China. Yeah, I'm willing to do it. I have no problem with that. And in response, what China did is initially start with a response to the tariffs. But uh, then China caves and actually is lowering tariffs for American goods. And a lot of credit is being given to the president, I think, to a great extent it should be. He talks a big game and he's willing to do a big game. Except in the case of Syria, which we're going to talk about it a little later on. So let me swing it back to the president talking and people paying attention. The caravan, 1,100 people were marching up to the border. Well, it's down to 200 people that are marching up to the border from Central America that are going to claim asylum because uh, where they come from, Guatemala and El Salvador, uh, are such dangerous places to live that they are in true fear of their lives because of the gangs and our narco-traficantes, which is, incidentally, one of the bases for being granted asylum. All right, so the governor agrees to deploy 400 troops. California. All right, uh, a quick other one about the Trump administration is uh, now allowing the states to require drug testing for some food stamp recipients. And this is a let's give more money to the states and block grants and let the states do what they do. And that's always been an argument among conservatives versus liberals. And that is uh, liberals argue that you have states in the deep south, for example, uh, that simply don't like poor people, don't like welfare recipients, don't like people who believe in evolution. And so the argument for the, the liberal crowd is you put in federal control and you don't let the states do what they can do. All right. Uh, two sides to that one. And that is uh, there is an issue of states' rights. And uh, do states have a right to control their own destinies? And in this case, uh, the uh, administration is looking at a plan that requires certain food stamp recipients to undergo drug testing. Now, it is limited to able-bodied people who don't have kids. And it's going to be, well, this is another step in uh, allowing states more flexibility in how they implement federal programs. Because the feds pay for this. Food stamps are paid for the most part for by the feds. And they serve the poor, they serve the unemployed, they serve the uninsured. If you look at the number of people that are on food stamps in this country, it is astronomical. I mean, the percentage is enormous. And especially, and this is a weird one, you would think that the number of people on food stamps would drop dramatically when it comes to a good economy. Not so much. Not so much. So the Agriculture Department uh, is waiting word from the White House about the timing of this drug testing announcement. And I have to tell you, it makes sense to me. It does. Why are is everybody so upset or why are liberals so upset? Well, it's an invasion of privacy. Of course it's an invasion of privacy. I told this story this morning. It used to be a thing. When I was in junior college... 
there used to be scholarships for the football players. They would come from, you know, different states or whatever. They all, it it was a well-known thing that when you got to school, you went on food stamps and then you used the money that your parents sent you for food to buy weed. Yeah, I mean, and that's uh, and that's, that's what they and did. That's the issue here. If the states have no control and the feds just hand out money, uh, what are they using the money for? Because there is more control. There is uh, uh, potentially a stronger bureaucratic uh, division or uh, just bureaucratic control with the states than the feds. And the feds, it's, uh, you know, what do they do? Set up the department of making sure you don't smoke weed with federal food stamp money? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's far more difficult. And then you have the issue of invasion of privacy. That's the big one. Well, yeah, it's all an invasion of privacy. Uh, someone comes to work for me and I ask for a drug test. That's an invasion of privacy. I would have liked so these guys. So what? Right. I would have liked their privacy to have been invaded because they were so fraudulent, so screwing the system, so making it so that real people who needed it, you know, are getting, you know, whatever, criticized yeah. for it or whatever. When these guys, they didn't need it. You talk about able-bodied. They were on the freaking football team. Go ahead now, and get a job. Now, there is one other side of this which actually makes sense. And we're simply talking the practical side. And that is the cost of implementing versus the cost of just letting it go. Uh, which in many welfare programs, the cost of actually writing the check to the welfare recipients and allowing fraud, the number of fraudsters is low enough to where the cost of patrolling and controlling that is more than simply the cost of writing the checks. And then the issue becomes, do we just let it slide or do we simply have, uh, do we take a moral position and say, if you commit fraud, workers comp, et cetera, if you commit fraud, we're going to nail you, even though it costs us more money to do so. And that's a governmental decision. And I look at this, as many people do, it's simply practical. It's dollars and cents. And if people are going to commit fraud, for example, able-bodied people getting food stamps where if you have drug testing, uh, well, uh, you can stop it. Uh, and then the argument is, is the state more, uh, is it easier for a state to control this and establish the bureaucracy than the feds? And the answer, of course, is uh, clearly yes. Local control of school boards. I mean, clearly, school boards have much more control than does the fed or even the state in implementing school policy. Oh, then the policy, uh, then the the issue becomes you got crazy ass school boards in Kansas who decide that evolution uh, is not science, but creationism is. <sighs> what do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? So uh, which way it's going to go? My guess is it's probably going to go by way of uh, drug testing, and I'm fine with that. Do you know who else implemented real restrictions on welfare? And I mean massive restrictions. You better go to work. You've got X time to receive welfare, and then you go to work. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton did that when he wasn't busy having sex with Monica Lewinsky. All right, uh, let's take a break real quick. We're still keeping on going because I have plenty more to talk about. Uh, Your chance to win some cash. Your shot at $1,000 now. 
Text the keyword cash to 200-200. You'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info. Standard data and messaging rates apply. That's cash to 200-200. They notify the winner by calling them. You have to pick up that call. Joyce and Artesia did, and she is $1,000 richer. Your next chance to win next hour. All right, back we go. And I'm going to finish this up, uh, at least the uh, welfare part of this. Uh, and that is with another uh, Donald Trump plan, big push to expand work requirements uh, in our nation's social uh, safety net. And he wants people to go to work. Again, going back to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton did this. And I don't know who's opposed to this. Uh, well, I guess people who think there's a fundamental right to not work and get welfare. Now, the rule's going to be fairly strict. I don't know how you define someone who's able-bodied. Uh, if uh, someone is mentally ill, is that able-bodied? If someone is able to work, 20, 30-year-olds, uh, 40-year-olds who look like they're ambulatory and uh, they're able to hold up that sign, will work for food without actually straining and uh, so, again, it's a question of dealing with the requirements and dealing with the bureaucracy. But the basic premise, who's against that? All right. Now, a homeless issue. And I love doing homeless. There's so many spins to homeless. One of the things that I have said over and over again, and I think you know it's true, is that uh, dealing with the homeless and making any serious inroads is an incremental issue. It's going to be little bits and pieces. And if you have enough little bits and pieces, then you're going to make a, a real inroad here. You're going to really make a dent in our homeless pro, uh, process. We will. So here's a new one. Now, keep in mind, uh, protests blocked uh, homeless housing in Temple City, delayed at Boyle Heights, Orange County killed uh, the uh, homeless shelters in those three cities based on NIMBY, not in my backyard. So here is a plan L.A. County is instituting. Paying property owners to put up houses for homeless people in their backyard. Let's build these homeless houses, small ones. I mean, full houses, right? They're one, they're studios. I mean, pretty small 200, 300 square feet, but with a bathroom, lighting, uh, kitchen or kitchenette. So in August, uh, the County Board of Supervisors approved a half million dollar pilot program to build a handful of these small backyard houses or, and this one I love, upgrade illegally converted garages into housing for the homeless. And under this county's pilot program, uh, rents would be covered by low-income vouchers. Tenants contributing 30% of their incomes, all the way from 30% of their incomes down to zero. And if someone is uh, earning $500 a month, it's 30% of that. And then the rest of it is paid for by the government. And so officials hope, and it's a big hope, it could be uh, a fast, relatively inexpensive way to house the stable individuals among the 58,000 homeless people in L.A. County. So it's going to be limited to stable people because you can't have crazies running around. And I'm assuming you can't have people with 
so many diseases that uh, you don't want to be within 100 feet of them because of airborne problems, airborne diseases. Just guessing here. And uh, already the city and county are experimenting with new financing options, low-cost materials, designs. And so there, is, there are plans for architects to come up with housing. Now, there's never been plans to make it this extensive. It's always been temporary shelters, using containers, uh, freight containers, for example, uh, putting up cardboard, uh, let's say reinforcing those refrigerator boxes where people live. You ever seen a three-bedroom refrigerator box uh, on the streets? I have. Very roomy. Uh, Here's a living room. Oh, would you like to see? Oh, there's the bedroom over here. And you need a few of these refrigerator boxes. So uh, now we've already voted ourselves. This is a Lee one uh, in L.A. Uh, one point two billion dollars for the homely ho- uh, homeless housing. But homeless housing at is as it currently is being dealt with or being contemplated is three hundred and fifty thousand dollars each. And it's mainly for disabled people under the ADA. It's going to take years to reach the goal of 10,000 new apartments. Well, government can finance a homeless granny flat for three years for as little as $15,000 a year, which is about the uh, cost of a shelter bed. So who is going to allow housing for the homeless in their backyard? You want to ask me? That's a big no. Not interested. However... Here's a stat, kind of floored me, about 100 of the 500 homeowners that the county initially contacted said they're interested. 100 out of 500. Interested. Really? And so now the county is whittling down 27 qualified applicants who are ready to build to a list of six finalists. And then you're going to have this experimental housing being uh, created. So let's see. We have 58,000 homeless people. Six of these are going to be built. And okay. But it's incremental, right? It's little bits and pieces. And if this works, then it's going to be uh, a much bigger program. Now, there are a couple of caveats. First of all, the homeowner, of course, has to say, that's fine. My backyard? Uh, Sure. Go right ahead. And incidentally, there's income there, too. Uh, the other rule that is being contemplated is everybody on the block has to be okay with it. So if you have one person that's not thrilled, uh, that's a black ball. They can say absolutely not. Hmm. All right. More on the homeless. It was kind of neat. I'm looking at a, uh, a drawing, a rendering of one of these small houses. Uh, not bad. Not bad. All right. Uh, coming up. States and private prisons. And uh, we all thought private prisons were the answer, particularly here in California. Uh, not so much. This is KFI. And- all right, Handle here on a, a Thursday. Uh, and uh, we have a modified show today in terms of uh, time. And that is uh, coming up at 830. That's when we're going to do our super segment. Uh, and it is not going to be... Uh, handle on the news late edition. We're moving that till nine o'clock because it is Holocaust Remembrance Day, and there's a story that I'm going to do uh, about my dad. And I've done this. Uh, I recorded this a bunch of years ago, and my father is a part of it. 
And it's his experience, his story about the Holocaust. And it is extraordinary. It really is. I grew up with this. And I'm going, wow, I have to share this. And so that'll happen at 8.30, a super segment. And then coming up at 8 o'clock, a success from scratch. Oh, uh, you want to be intimidated? Just wait until you hear that story. All right. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about private prisons. This is a story uh, that just came out. New York Times did this. And the reason it got my attention is I always thought private prisons were a great idea. Uh, Why? Because it costs so much money to house prisoners. I thought California was at the top of the heap in terms of the cost of prisoners per year. Uh, Actually, we're number two. New York. New York. New York is number one in terms of cost. $70,000 a year to house a prisoner. That's more than going to an Ivy League school. You're better off giving them a, giving them a, uh, a entire year, entire education. Someone does four years. Here you go. Go to Harvard instead. California is second at sixty-five thousand dollars, sixty-four five. And I'm thinking, okay, first of all, why is it so expensive? Well, because here in California, I'm not too familiar with New York. Uh, it is uh, the cost of uh, the guards, prison guards, one of the most powerful lobbies. Prison guards make buckets of money. So you go to a private prison, and uh, you're going to be paying 20 bucks an hour, $15 an hour for a guard, although you have to train them, et cetera. But you're certainly not going to pay them with the benefits, et cetera, that it costs in California or obviously New York. Incidentally, any idea, and uh, uh, Jennifer, you may not, you may know this, the cheapest state the least expensive state in terms of annual cost to house a prisoner arizona uh no oh that's a good uh that is not bad but arizona isn't even in the bottom uh 10 alabama oh i was gonna say atlanta alabama Alabama, yeah under fifteen thousand dollars wow but then again they don't offer food or beds or toilets and that makes it a lot cheaper to house a prisoner and it Actually, in Alabama, plays pays a school teacher's nine dollars an hour too. I mean, that's just that's the deep south. Although squirrels are very cheap uh, to eat, you don't pay a lot for them in the store. Wow! And so uh, here's the issue with the, the prison guards, and why it turns out if you look at the money part and the studies. And I always default to how much does it cost? What do the studies show? Are the studies legitimate? I mean, is this real science? Who does the study? These nonprofits, uh, uh, not partisan, nonpartisan studies, governmental studies that are done by nonpartisan parts of the government. And according to them, not only does it not cost or it costs about the same, there's no money being saved with private prisons, but the quality of Housing these prisoners in the private prisons suck. Gangs are more prevalent. The control of the prisoners is less than that of state prisons. So what is, why aren't we building more state prisons? It gets pretty expensive. It's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And frankly, we're letting everybody go. Now, they're moving to the county, and so you have county facilities that have to be built. But the bottom line is that it just doesn't work. 
A federal review found private prisons far more dangerous than government-run prisons. And even with that, uh, the Trump administration is going to expand the use of private prisons. Now, I don't know if federal prisons are privatized uh, as opposed to state prisons. And uh, where is uh, Wayne? He's running around someplace. Of all the people that would know about federal prisons, he would. And there are hundreds of lawsuits uh, being filed. And during the course of these lawsuits, we're finding out that these private prisons save taxpayers either little or no money and repeated constitutional violations, which then the cost of defending those lawsuits goes crazy. And the number of privately housed inmates has exploded since 2000. Even states that have sworn off private prisons are so caught up in the system that it becomes almost impossible to go the other way. Because again, assuming that a state says, okay, the private prison system doesn't work, we have to bring everybody back. Well, back to what? They have to build a prison. And prisons are not easy to build. As I said, they're hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, They have to be staffed. And in California, very high-earning prison guards. You know who gave all the money to the prison guards? Incidentally, Jerry Brown. Just let them run rampant in terms of the amount of money uh, that they make. And so what do these private prisons do? Well, uh, well, they hire, of course, former corrections officers uh, and Oh, here's one. How about enormous campaign contributions? There are two companies that are that basically have the entire market and they switch back and forth. One company loses the contract because of misconduct and it goes to the other company. And then when that company screws up, it goes back to the first company. The industry officials say, oh, no, no, this is a very cost effective way to house inmates, even though the studies and the money part of it doesn't quite pan out. Now, one of the groups, the GEO group, uh, and the other one is Core Civic. Uh, in Florida alone, a million dollars to state candidates and parties leading up to the vote in terms of whether to continue on with state prisons or with uh, private prisons. So the bottom line, it doesn't work. I thought it was a great idea. It sucks. People are making a lot of money. The facilities aren't good. And the prisoners aren't getting uh, the kind of care they need. Now, when we talk about care, I'm fine with no food, no toilets, no beds. I have no problem with that. But uh, rehab facilities, mental health facilities, I mean, most of them are mentally ill. Do you do you let them just go crazy? Well, uh, you certainly do in Alabama. As a matter of fact, some of those prisoners are so crazy, the guards let them put them on, on talent shows. Crazy people talent shows. Actually, probably not. All right. Uh, coming up, executions. The media is suing to make all portions of executions public. I mean, all portions, even mixing up the drugs in that black cauldron and doing incantations over it. Am I reading that wrong? I think so. Okay. We'll be right back. KFI AM 640. KFI Handle here on a uh, Thursday. Uh, We have a lot of things going on today. Uh, First of all, the big stories we're covering. Syria, uh, 
Is uh, Donald Trump going to unload the attack on Syria? And there's so much on that one. National Guard. Yep. California National Guard moving down to the border. And uh, coming up at 8 o'clock, I have a success from scratch story for you. Uh, that's, I guarantee you, you're going to feel so intimidated that I don't care what you do and how successful you are. Eh. Yeah, you're not there. Uh, and then at 8.30 tonight, it's Holocaust, or 8.30 this morning, Holocaust Remembrance Day. And so replay, replaying the story I did about my dad's story uh, as a Holocaust survivor. And I've, I've done this a couple times over the years. And uh, people ask me to replay it constantly. And we haven't done this for years either. And so I'm bringing it back uh, based on Holocaust Remembrance Day. So uh, that's a lot going on. Okay. Uh, executions. I, you know, California, I love Californian executions uh, because, well, first of all, I went to one and it was just a wonderful day. And I saw William Bonin be executed. And it was the first or the second lethal injection executed in the state. Uh, execution that was done in the state and uh things changed since then uh it was a cocktail uh of uh drugs that were used and the way it works uh in the gas chamber which is what used to be the gas chamber now it's the death chamber in san quentin is there's a curtain that uh, goes across very nicely made curtain by the way has a nice frill to it there's a nice hem and what happens is they pull the curtain back and you get to see the execution. Well, when I saw it, when uh, the curtains were pull, pulled back, William Bonin was already on the gurney and the, uh, the IVs were already in his arm. They do two IVs, one for each arm, one as a backup. And they changed their policy after that because the media went nuts, saying, we want to see the IVs going into his arm. All right, which is what they did. I was also told, because I wasn't there, they actually use alcohol on the arm. Did you know that? Why? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. For infection purposes, I have no idea. But, so I didn't see that, but I was told that happened. So, quick, quick, quick question. Is, do you, can they see you? Can, uh, is it, yeah, you know, I think they is can, it the yes. two-way glass? Can yes. They, no, okay, it's no, not, they can no, see. they can see you. Okay. Yes. They look out and sometimes they mouth, I'm sorry. And yeah, they can, okay. yeah, those people can see you. And so now uh, there is uh, another lawsuit from the media. media. They want to go beyond that and actually watch the cocktail or the drugs being mixed up. I mean, not mixed up as in the sense of mixing one up with another. I'm talking about being created because it's a cocktail. They have to put all the drugs together. As I said, it's like the cauldron, uh, you know, double, double toil and trouble kind of thing. Eye of Newt and uh, Warthog parts and just all mixed up with a stick. And so they want to see that. And, uh, you know, I don't know how far they can go with that because it didn't bother me just to watch uh, William Bond and die. But the argument is that the media, on behalf of the public, has the right to see every single bit of it. This is a public execution. I mean, not public in terms of uh, pay-per-view, but... Witnesses, media, I mean, there is no question. We, through our surrogates, have a right to see what's going on. And so, and the big issue was, and there's lawsuits all over the country, that cocktail of drugs that's uh, used. And I think uh, one is to paralyze, one is to knock unconscious, and one of them is to stop the heart. And, you know, is it cruel? It is unusual. They botched it a few times. I've always wondered, uh, and then some of these companies won't let their drugs be used for execution. 
and they expire, and it really gets to be just a mess when you're trying to execute someone, which is why I'm no longer in favor of executions. It's just too expensive, too big a deal, although I love executions. Why don't they just use propofol? You know, Michael Jackson, Conrad Murray put it, you know, killed him with it. I mean, propofil, uh, propofil, and I've had it done when I had surgery. I mean, it, it's, an anesth- it's an anesthesia or anesthetic. And it literally puts you to sleep and then just overdose someone. I mean, it's, it's that simple. So you end up being executed while you sleep. And then they drag you off with a new set of teeth. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. But you're, you become dead with something that is used, something that is available, and there is no pain. And you truly, well, in the case of coming back, you don't remember a thing. Also, when you're dead, you tend not to remember a thing either. But I've always wondered why uh, they don't just overdose someone. Phenobarbital, for example, the drug that's used to uh, destroy or put down uh, your animal. That's what they that, use. Yeah, I was going to say I'm not comparing the two, but no, but it, no, that's what they do. Well, actually, you can compare the two. Because uh, the uh, the animals who do end up uh, being executed, uh, the heinous crimes they've uh, committed, are are so bad they just des- they deserve to be put to death in a much more cruel and unusual way. I don't think the Eighth Amendment should even apply to these people. When we put our Shasta down a few months ago, that's what they did. They put her to sleep first, and she went right to sleep within ten seconds, and then they administered the other drug, and that was it. I don't understand it. Because it would be so easy. And lethal lethal injections, they have been botched. People react, not enough. Just get Conrad Murray. He seems to know what he's doing. I I don't understand it. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to come back, and we're going to start with a success from scratch. uh, A young lady who has created something rather extraordinary. And first of all, you're going to think, why didn't I think of that? And number two, wait till I tell you uh, I'm interviewing her, uh, who she is. And then uh, coming up at 8.30, a super segment, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and the interview with my dad. uh, And uh, be talking about his story as a Holocaust survivor. And then after that, at 9, we'll do Handle on the News Late Edition. So a lot coming up. This is KFI AM 640. KFI Handle here, and boy, what a Success from Scratch story I have for you. Success from Scratch is brought to you by Lifteek. Look years younger without faceless surgery. Go to Lifteek.com. I want to introduce you to a young lady by the name of Alina Morse. And by the way, a young lady. Alina is 12 years old. And uh, you've got an amazing story, Alina, so let's start sharing it. The name of your company is... Zolly Pops. Zolly Pops. So just tell me, I'm going to just let you go uh, because uh, you're better telling your story than anybody else I know. Tell me how it started. Tell me how uh, you got your idea. Tell me where it is now. Where are you going with it? Let's just start from the beginning. How did this come into your head? Well, first of all, what is it and, where did it and how did it come into your head? 
So Zolipops is an all-natural sugar-free lollipop that actually cleans your teeth. So it has xylitol and erythritol in it, and it actually raises the pH in your mouth, neutralizes the acid, and strengthens your tooth enamel, which takes away the bacteria that causes cavities and tooth decay to grow. How do you know that? I mean, how did you figure that out? I mean, how old were you when you started this thing? I came up with the idea when I was seven years old when I went to the bank with my dad, and the bank teller offered me a lollipop, and my dad told me that I shouldn't have candy because sugar is terrible for my teeth. So I asked him, well, why can't we make a healthy sucker that's good for my teeth so that I could have candy and it wouldn't be bad for me? And after about two years of research, and that's how I figured that stuff out, all the dentistry and science behind it, um, we created the ingredient list and... We ran plant trials. Yeah, uh, You know, Alina, I'm shaking my head here. Uh, so you, you started doing your research at what age? When I was about seven years old. Where does it, I, I wasn't even reading at seven. Where in God's name do you go in and do research and figure out what you're looking for and how to figure out what it is that you need? So um, I initially talked to my dentist and my dental hygienist about um, what ingredients they felt that I should use because, you know, they're the experts. And um, so we put together a list of ingredients, which consists of xylitol and erythritol, which are all natural sweeteners, but they also have health benefits. Um, like I said before, they raise the pH in your mouth, they neutralize the acid, and they strengthen your tooth enamel. So it actually reduces the risk of cavities and tooth decay. All right, so uh, you come up with the idea. I'm assuming you have to make a prototype, correct? Yes. Okay, so tell me about that. So we, once we got the ingredients uh, figured out, we went to several plants and we did plant trials until we found the plant that we like and we found um, how we like them to be run, uh, what shape, um, what size, what colors, and what flavors. Mm. So I'm assuming uh, this costs some money to go to these various manufacturing plants, correct? Yes. Okay, so where did you raise the money? Because I'm assuming you're not out doing bake sales and going door-to-door doing uh, Girl Scout cookies. (laughs) No, but um, we, uh, our initial investment was about $7,000. Okay. And, we're, and, and you, you that get, was um, that was money that I saved up, and that was from uh, birthdays and grandparents, and so then this, my parents actually matched it. So okay. That, so even with you, you had thirty five hundred dollars of your money that you had saved to invest in your product, and your parents matched it. I put up 7000 uh, and then my parents put up 7000 They matched it. Oh, my God. And how old were you when this happened? About nine years old. Nine, of course. Well, every nine-year-old has $7,000. Uh, do you, you have any idea how intimidating you are to me? Uh, I am telling you right this. I'm talking to a 12-year-old, and I am totally out of my mind intimidated by you. But let's, conti- let's continue on with the story. Oh, I have to have my kids listen to this. Uh, trust me. All right. So you go ahead and uh, $14,000 and you do your trials. You invest in the manufacturing process. And at some point after that investment, you come up with a saleable product. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. How about the packaging? How about the design? 
So I wanted the packaging to be something very bright and exciting because, you know, most sugar-free things are very dull and kind of gross. Nobody really wants them. But we wanted to make a sugar-free candy that tastes good and that appealed to kids. So we found that if we did a super, you know, bright package, it'd be more uh, for kids and for families. So um, we went to... I of course drew out some uh sketches of what i wanted to be like and then we went to a graphic designer and there we uh figured out the exact shade of color um the exact print and we made sure that everything on the package was perfect hey uh, you know where did you uh learn about graphic design and packaging. I'm assuming you didn't go to venture capitalists who gave you their first round of $120 million before you go to the second round. Uh, was this an interest that you had, your parents came forward, or did you intuitively knew, know that this is what you had to do to create a product? Well, when I was like seven years old, my dad read to me Rich Dad Poor Dad, and that really kind of sparked my... Uh, ideas for creating a company and trying to make the world a better place and to help people through business. So, um, I mean, my dad was a business consultant uh, before he started working with Zollipop. So he works for you. Your dad works for you, right? Yep. That's just wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I absolutely love this. Let me do this. Let me take a break. Uh, and uh, Elena, we'll come back and I'll do one more segment because I have so many questions uh, to ask you uh, about Zolly Pops, uh, which is owned by this 12-year-old young lady, Alina Morse. And uh, I, All right, we'll be back because I have a bunch of things to ask you. This is KFI, uh, Jennifer Jones-Lee. You're right. Handle here and a success from scratch, a success from scratch segment. Alina Morse, who is now 12 years old, started a company when she was seven years old, and it's called Zolly Pops, which is which are at least then now that there's expanded the line uh, that are sugar free lollipops that actually help your teeth. Uh, it's actually good for you, which is extraordinary. So, Zolly, or excuse me, uh, Alina, in our last episode, we talked about how you took $7,000 of your own money at the age of seven. Uh, Your parents matched it. You went to marketing. uh, You went and had some prototypes done. You created this product. And uh, now I'm assuming you have to actually sell the product, correct? Yes. Okay, go ahead. So our first meeting was with the Whole Foods buyer for a region, and um, we went to the meeting, and I was super nervous, but they loved our product, they loved our idea, and they started selling. Um, After that, we went to the Amazon buyers, and we soon after got Zolly Pups in Amazon, and then... We got in, then we had a meeting with the Kroger buyers. We got into Kroger's, and then most recently we just got into Walmart stores, which is super exciting because yeah, you know, Walmart's are basically everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, how old were you when uh, that Whole Foods purchase uh, happened? The first order. About nine years old. All right, you're nine years old, and I'm assuming the fact you're nine years old didn't hurt uh, in terms of getting the meeting. Do you remember the how big that first order was? Um, it was only for one region, and 
maybe about five thousand dollars. All right. And out so of that, it was it was it was um a great starter for us because we were very um you know we were super new and this was like our first oh yeah store so how did you get the meetings uh alina uh because no one gets meetings with walmart and kroger and whole foods i mean it's impossible to get meetings how were you able to do it well we go to a lot of trade shows and um you know we have quite a few connections from going to those trade shows we meet a lot of people and we have a lot of meetings and it just kind of um leads us kind of leads us back um to those buyers hey let me ask you i'm assuming you're 12 you haven't dropped out of school yet and i'm assuming you're not in an mba program where you can determine your own hours what do you do about school and business at the same time so i go to school full-time um, school's really important. I need to get good grades and I want to go to a good college. So not dropping out of school, but, um, I balance my time after school into thirds usually. I do one third for business and that's, uh, uh, looking at, uh, market trends, uh, data and, um, trying to find ways to improve our products, responding mm. to mm. people, and um, really just working with our team at Zollipop. Yeah, and like, and then, just like most 12-year-olds do. No, I get that. You uh, sound like every 12-year-old I've ever met. Uh, what are your, what are your, the fellow students, the people you hang with? I'm not even going to say you play with because obviously you're already past playing uh, with. But what are your, uh, your schoolmates think of all this? How do they react to you? Well, um, a lot of my friends know about Zollipops, but they don't really treat me differently because of it. Um, I mean, so they think it's cool that, like, I get to travel around and I get to, you know, be on TV and stuff. But um, they just treat me normally. And uh, they honestly, the only time that they really bring up Zollipops is if they want them. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. Let me uh, just uh, go through the last part of this before we give you a website and where people can actually look at, at your products. And that is, where are you today with this business? Well, um, today we are in, um, we are in Kroger's, we're in Walmart, we're in Amazon, we're in um, Fred Meyer. That's amazing. Uh, Can I ask, and I know we can go through the whole list, it would take forever, uh, is it fair for, for me to ask what kind of revenue you're doing right now? I know uh, you don't have to tell me that, but uh, can you tell me where where you're going here? So we are a private company, so we don't um, disclose all of our information. But it's we can say over ten mil. We've sold over ten million um, Zolly Pops, which comes out to be about two million dollars, wow. which is about five million dollars at retail. Wow. Just wow. Uh, so where do you see this going? Uh, and I know you had told me that your dad works for you, which is hilarious. Uh, I'm a, are you the CEO, president of this company? Yes. Of course you do. And do you order, order your dad around? No. Oh, of, well. Okay. <laughs> He's still my dad. He can Got, still ground me. Got it. That's hilarious. Uh, so uh, what are your plans? In other words, uh, your business plan. Where are you going to be? Uh, next year, five years from now, ten years from now. And I know you have other products. You have Zolly Drops, you have uh, Zaffy uh, Taffy, and the original Zolly Pops. So where are you going to be next year or five years from now? 
Well, um, we definitely want to expand the business to be the best it can be. But um, one of our main goals right now is to be the number one selling sugar-free candy because we have Zollipop, Zolly Drops, and Zaffy. So we don't want to just be the number one selling sugar-free lollipop. We want to be the number one um, sugar-free candy. And we want to, you know, help kids all over the world. I love so it. That's really why I started this. And um, we've already expanded into multiple countries. Of course you have. Uh, <laughs> Alina, uh, give me a website where uh, people can reach you, your company, and get more information. You can go to zollipubs.com. You can also follow us on facebook.com slash zollycandy and our YouTube channel, which gives lots of fun tips and um, lots of information, is youtube.com slash zollycandy. And zolly is Z-O-L-L-I, correct? Yep, Z-O-L-L-I-P-O-P-S for zollipops.com, Z-O-L-L-I-C-A-N-D-Y for our Facebook and our YouTube. Yeah, or Alina, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so yeah, much, you're, yeah. You're an extraordinary young lady. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right, by the way, for those of you that are also intimidated by these 12, this 12-year-old girl, you should be. Just to want to let you know. Okay, Jennifer Jones-Lee, you're up. It is a uh, Thursday, April the uh, 12th. Today is uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. And uh, for people of the Hebraic American persuasion, uh, this is a a pretty important day. And so uh, a few years ago, I did a story of my father. Matter of fact, I've been talking about my dad's story as a Holocaust survivor for ever since I've been a kid. And so I interviewed him for this show many years ago. And I've played it a few times. And uh, people keep on asking me, when are you going to play it again? When are you going to play it again? And this uh, is my dad's story. Now, he may be a little bit difficult to understand because even though he came to the United States in 1956, to the day he died, he sounded like he got off the boat the morning before. Uh, English was by far his weakest language. He spoke nine languages, and English was the worst one he spoke. So... Uh, what I'd like you to do, if you would, is listen to the story of my dad, Leo Handel, as a Holocaust survivor. During the 1930s, my father was a youthful, vigorous man living in Europe. He was schooled in the best universities, studied several languages. He witnessed the rise of evil in Germany. He was arrested, tortured, released. He escaped to the Vatican, and he lost his parents in the Holocaust. And all of this before he was 25 years old. In honor of my father, I want to present to you the life of Leo Handel. Wolf and Golda Handel were both in their 30s and living in Poland when Leo was born in 1920. In the years to follow, the Polish economy was faltering, so the Handels decided to look for a better life in Yugoslavia. So Wolf and Golda, along with Leo, who was nine at the time, and his younger sister Jetta, four, settled in Zagreb, a big city of about half a million people. The Handels opened up a dry goods store and lived in an apartment nearby. And the family made a pretty good living, which allowed the children to get literally the best education in all of Europe. Zagreb was a, a wonderful city, a university city. And I started gymnasium, which was very strict. You have to make an admission test. And you had 11 subjects. History, mathematics, science, astronomy, chemistry, physics, five languages. 
five languages. Fortunately for Leo, his study of languages would in the years to come literally save his life as world events dramatically changed. In 1933, Leo was 13 years old and he was preparing for his bar mitzvah. On the day of his celebration into manhood, thousands of people in Germany were holding their own celebration. The Germans had decided to elect a new chancellor, Adolf Hitler. So while Leo was busy mastering Latin and French and Italian and German and other languages, Hitler was following his destiny, increasing the size of the German army, authorizing the formation of the Gestapo, building the first of the concentration camps. And little by little, the actions of Hitler and the Nazis filtered through Europe. Germany declared Jews inferior with unclean blood. Shops and restaurants increasingly refused to serve Jews. Germans were encouraged not to go to Jewish doctors or lawyers. Jews were not allowed to go into professions. Laws were passed in which Jews couldn't marry Aryans. Hitler's intent originally was to make life so miserable for the Jews, they would leave Germany. Some did, many didn't. So Hitler's plan was to make the whole of Europe into a place in which the Aryan race would reign supreme and Jews wouldn't exist. This nationalistic fever that Hitler promoted in Germany began to spread to other countries in Europe, including Yugoslavia, where the Handels were living. In 1939, Leo was 19 years old and studying to become an engineer. That was also the same year that marked the beginning of World War II when Germany invaded Poland. Over the next 48 months, the German army was a military juggernaut, unstoppable, taking over Norway and Denmark and Czechoslovakia and France and launching bombing raids on Britain. And in time, the Nazis set their sight on the Balkans, on Yugoslavia. The nationalistic fervor that the Nazis embodied inspired groups and other nations to follow their suit. In Yugoslavia, for example, there was a movement known as the Ustashi, latched onto the notion that Jews and other inferior races were the source of their problems. So when it was time for the Nazis to take over Yugoslavia, there were the Ustashi, ready, willing to help the Nazis. It is now 1941. On a bright Sunday morning in April, Leo's 21 years old, sees a sight he will never forget. The Nazis and the Ustashi, the nationalists, being welcomed into Zagreb. The day was festive. The radio blared, long live Hitler. The Nazis proclaiming Yugoslavia liberated from Jews and gypsies. Leo knew that bad times were coming. I was, I was trembling. I was trembling. I saw the Nazis coming in the city and people giving flowers and, and, and welcoming it. And I saw the reality. For I see the end, a not good end, a, a catastrophe. I, I, I will say, Father, listen, we have no future. And I heard that the Italians are saving Jews, that they're very good, they're very humane. Despite the fact that they still fight with Hitler, they, they refuse to give the Jews to, to Germany. And it was nice. I said, we have to go. Look what is happening. I have the store, everything here. Now, Wolf, Leo's dad, my grandfather, believed that his stature in Zagreb as a store owner would protect his family from this nightmare. But unfortunately for the handles, the nightmare would actually catch up with them, and pretty quickly. The Nazis spared no time in purging the Jews from Yugoslavia. One day, 
the Ustashi police show up at the door of the Handel family. They came in one afternoon and knocked on the door. They came and with a taxi and picked me up, and they said that they were going to interrogate me. I was taken to the fairground, which was very close to the home. There were already several hundred people, men, women, and children. There was only one spigot of water for all of the, the, the people. They were saying outside, sitting on the dirt and, and everything here, this camp was meant by 15 or 16-year-old kids who joined this so-called Ustashi Youth, which was a imitation of the Hitler Youth. Uh, I've seen one person just clobber to death. This I've seen. But uh, I assume that it wasn't the first and the last time. A couple of days later, Leo heard his name being called out on a loudspeaker. It turns out that his dad had tracked down an old military friend who was now a commanding general in the army. That was the connection my grandfather had. That's why he thought his family would be protected. And that general gave the order to let Leo go free. Leo went straight home and approached his dad with a plan to take refuge in Italy. We got to get out of here. Wolf refused, reassured his son, we're going to be okay. We have this protection. Our family will be all right. Two weeks later, there was another knock on the door of the Handel family. Two men in their 30s, wearing black uniforms, politely asked, Is Leo Handel here? My dad had opened the door. Yes, I'm Leo Handel. Once again, the Ustashi police were rounding up all of the educated young men in the area for interrogation. Leo followed them into the car and was taken away. Leo sat in the back seat as the car made its way through Zagreb. It pulled up on Rashkoga Street, number 9. And there the sign said, Ustashi Police, Jewish Department. The Ustashi Police had formed a special Jewish department that had complete autonomy. If anyone resisted them for any reason, the police were authorized to shoot. As for that department on Rashkoga Street, number 9... It was a home that once belonged to a wealthy Jewish family. It was now a place for the Ustashi to carry out their interrogations. No one said a word as Leo was taken from the car, literally thrown into one of the bathrooms. Moments later, someone came in, blindfolded him, and... They tied me up on a piano wire, which I still have here, the mark, hanging me there and started beating. Anytime I fainted, took me down, put my water in a can of water, so wake up. This is about three days. Three days. For three days, the interrogator beat Leo with a rubber hose. Give me the name of the communist, he barked. Leo responds, I don't know any. The sound of the radio blaring German marches masked the sound of the rubber hose cutting through the air as it hit and kept on hitting Leo's torso. The interrogator screams, Every Jew is a communist. Give me the name of a communist. Leo says, I don't know any. Three days later, Leo woke up once more to the splash of water, but this time, instead of being tortured, instead of being hit with a rubber hose, he's cut down from the pipe and said, you can go. Again, my grandfather's friend in the army had intervened to set Leo free. Leo arrived home and told his father, I go. I go to Italy. 
and I suggest you go too. The answer was, I have the store, I have money for, it, for everything here. I'm safe. And this was his famous word. Leo's mom didn't say a word. She packed a suitcase with money, shirts, socks, shoes, coffee, some other goods. Leo kissed his father, his mother, and his sisters goodbye. It was July of 1941. That was the last time you would ever see his parents. It was at that time that Leo, who was then 21, decided to seek refuge in Italy. Leo made his way out of Yugoslavia by sneaking across the border to the Dalmatian coast. This was an area controlled by the Italians. Now, even though Italy was part of the Axis, or allies with Germany, they did provide refuge to the Jews. Mussolini was not anti-Semitic. Months later, Leo ends up in Rovigo, a small province in Italy where many Jewish refugees had fled to. And while there, Leo had met up with some of his uncles and cousins. Meanwhile, back in Yugoslavia, Leo's dad, Wolf, was finalizing some creative arrangements to have his daughters, Leo's sister, sent to Italy. The plan was this. Wolf knew a woman that had a passport with herself and her two young boys. In those days, children were on the same passport as the parents. So he had two daughters at that time. My aunts, age 15 and 6, cut their hair and actually wear berets. Over the course of two trips, this woman took each of the daughters by train to Italy. When an officer came by to check the woman's papers, he saw one of the boys, actually one of my aunts, sleeping in the overhead compartment, stamp the passport and approve the travel. When the sisters arrived, they told Leo how they had spoken with the Archbishop of Zagreb, and he advised them, you go to the Vatican to seek further assistance. It is now 1944. Reichsfuhrer Heinrich Himmler arrived in Yugoslavia to personally rid the country of the Jews, the gypsies, and other undesirables. Meanwhile, Jeddah, the oldest of the sisters, is pounding on the doors of the Vatican. The oldest sister had a letter that the ecclesiastic authorities should help her any place, any time. She was 15. She went straight to the Vatican, start, fell on the floor, crying, showed the letter. She wants to see the Pope, his holiness. <laughs> Who the heck are you? I mean, the po- you have to have an audience in this time, you know. To see the Pope is, is, is something, you know. This is a dream. So who met her was Cardinal Borgongini Duca. Cardinal Duca was the Secretary of Education for the Vatican. He agreed to help the Handels by placing them in various Vatican institutions. The two sisters are placed in a convent. The uncles and cousins are used as gardeners. And Leo is tapped to be a Salesian teacher, educating young clerics, memorizing the Latin Mass, teaching catechism. And because of the intervention of Pope Pius XII, many Jews, including the Handels, were actually able to survive the Holocaust. But the Nazis were getting wise to this plan. They raided some institutions, rounded up the Jews that were hiding there. In one instance, two kids from Leo's school were being held. One night, Leo and his supervisor, Don Melomo, went to the local Reichsmarschall to pay him a visit. Don Melomo goes with me, and Reichsmark to Kessinger asked for the two kids. And I only translate what he, he said. 
So the first thing, if there's any Jews hidden in the convent, because they found a lot of Jews in other convents, unfortunately. So I turn to him and ask him, any Jews hidden to him? He says, no, and I translate nine. Calm with a straight face, you know, I tell you. And we went home. And I think in the same time, a little bit later, the two kids were delivered on the steps of the convent. This is the power of the Melomo head in the Vatican in this time. It is now July 6, 1944. Rome is liberated. For months, Leo had passed himself off as a cleric, a religious teacher in the Vatican. Now he and the relatives are free to move as they please. I went out with the uniform, and the first thing when I came in the uniform, the teachers, the students, they were astonished, you know. And I thank them, and I, I say I thank the Holy Church for saving, it's true, for saving my life. Leo's next step was to help finish off the Nazis. He volunteers to join the British Army. Originally, he started as a cook, but word got out that Leo was good with languages. So he was transferred to the front in intelligence to help interrogate captured Nazis. Leo came across 15-year-old captains, 16-year-old majors. As Leo says, soldiers with no pubic hair. He knew the Nazis were disintegrating at this point, and it was just a matter of time before the end would come. In the end, at the end of the war, he was discharged from the army. He spent a year as a translator for the Italian Supreme Court. And in 1946, Leo immigrated to Brazil, one of the few countries to openly let in Jews. Applied to come to the United States, but the United States was not letting in Jews, not for decades. Once Leo got to Brazil, Jewish organizations that were involved throughout the entire world in helping refugees put up Leo in a local hotel. And that's where he met his wife, my mother, Nahama. By coincidence, Nahama was supposed to meet a friend somehow, and the friend didn't come. I was there, and it was uh, some sort of love of first, <laughs> of, of first sight. We were about a year engaged because, you know, no money to get married, you know, very, very different. We were engaged a year, and after a year, we, we, we married. One year later, Bill was born, and two and a half years later, Mark was born. Leo and his family eventually immigrated to the United States, 10 years later, basing themselves in Southern California. Soon after, he made a trip back to Zagreb to find out what happened to his parents. Everywhere he went, he got a different story. Some say they disappeared. Others say they left. Others say they were rounded up. The only thing that Leo knows for sure is that in the town's records, there is a listing of Wolf and Golda Handel. And next to their names is the last known official record of their existence. And it reads, Taken Away. We now are pretty sure they were shipped in cattle cars to Auschwitz as a group of other Jews from that town were during that time. Decades later, at age 84, Leo reflects on the Holocaust, on the chances that his father and mother did not take to leave Zagreb, and how those decisions affect him to this day. Listen, the whole Holocaust... This was a system which is undescribable. It defies every reason. 
So I'm not going to analyze my father, and I'm not going to consider myself smarter. If, if I start analyzing, I would hate him, and I don't want to. All right, that's uh, the story of uh, my dad and uh, the guilt that he had his entire life. And he did. He didn't talk much about it, but I knew how guilty he was that he couldn't talk his parents out of there. And uh, there is uh, the last photo that exists of his uh, mom and dad are the passport photos they took to uh, try to get a visa out of Yugoslavia. But by the time uh, that happened, by the time the application was made, the border had shut down and uh, there was no way anybody was going to get out. And, of course, uh, he was able to get out by, by escaping, but uh, you know, his folks were in their 50s. And it was just very, very difficult. So um, that's his story. You know, I want to I want to make a point here. You know, a lot of people go, "Oh, that's a what an incredible story. That's uh, an astounding story." Every single story of a Holocaust survivor can be made into a movie. Everyone. We talk about Schindler's List, uh, Steven Spielberg's film, uh, about that extraordinary story of Oscar Schindler. You know. And as astounding as that story is, there are many, many more like it. Uh, not necessarily what Schindler did, but uh, just survival stories and stories that are just completely crazy. Uh, one of the early lawyers, when I started practicing law, I was in my office, and there was a lawyer that had an office just down the hall from me. Uh, and as a young boy of 15, he was one of... Uh, those people that were lined uh, in front of a pit and shot. These were the days before the, the mechanized uh, killing took place, the killing factories took place. And they would uh, simply line up people in a, in a pit and shoot them, and uh, they realized very quickly that was not particularly an efficient way of doing that. So then they went into the industrial killing of the various camps. And uh, there he was as a young boy, and uh, the shots came. He was lined up with his family. And the particular shot that hit him grazed his skull. He uh, didn't die. He survived. And he remembers and talks about how he lay down under the bodies of his family that entire day. And was able to crawl out uh, at night. And then went on to survive the war and then went on to become an attorney. And uh, that's another story of uh, which there are so many. All right. Uh, let's just, uh, oh, if you want to listen to, uh, oh, the interview, uh, you can listen to it again and uh, see the pictures of Leo. We have four or five pictures of Leo, but kind of fun pictures. You know, he's smiling. He's happy. You know, my kids are there. You get to see a picture of my kids at three years of age. Ugh. Boy, those are the days, right? That was before they could actually ask me for a credit card. Well, you talk about memory, huh? And you can go to KFIAM640.com. The keyword is handle. Now, coming up, uh, we're, and we're sort of changing uh, the way we're doing our timing this morning. Coming up now is handle on the law, or excuse me, handle on the news, late edition. Right here, KFIAM640. Handle on the news. Late edition. Handle on the news. 
Will Trump fire Bill Handel? I think he might. might. If he gets angry enough, sure. And now, here's Bill Handel. All right. That's funny. I handle here on a uh, Thursday, April 12th. Um, Mike Pompeo is uh, in uh, front of the Senate right now as uh, the hearings to confirm him as Secretary of State uh, have been going on all morning long. And I don't even know why he they bother with that, uh, because Democrats are going to vote against him, uh, many of them. All the Republicans are going to vote for him, and uh, they're putting him through, uh, they're grilling him like crazy, and it shouldn't have to be there. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? You know what? Is he qualified? That's it. Is he qualified to be the Secretary of State? Let's look at his background. And okay, yep, he was CIA director for five minutes. And he was a congressman for a period of time. How much experience does he have? And just but done. But oh no, that, that's because the Constitution talks about advice and consent of the Senate. We know what consent is. They have to vote. And if you get 51 uh, senators, you, you have a confirmed uh, secretary. Uh, but I don't know what advice is. Well, in this case, it's putting him through the mill. And uh, what do you think of that? How, how would you act? You know, one of the questions they asked him is, are you willing to be independent of the president? And he goes, well, I can give the president my advice. I work for the president. No, I'm not independent of the president. I work at his pleasure. How independent are you of your employer? You're not. He actually, I mean, if the president says don't do such and such, he can't do it. Right. He can say, I think we should. Right. But he can't do it. And uh, on top of that, instead of answering, well, what would you say? What hypothetically? You know what, Senator? That's my advice to the president. And that's behind closed doors. I am not going to sit here and tell you uh, what I would say and under what circumstances. Because in the end, my advice to the president is a private affair. And then once he makes his decision, it is now time at that point for me to implement that decision that the president makes. And, in fact, defend it, even though I may personally disagree. I mean, this whole thing is uh, just, for God's sake, drives me completely crazy. All right. Uh, let's do it. Handle on the news, late edition. Jennifer Jones, Lee, Wayne Resnick, and me. Lead story. Special counsel got you sweating like crazy. Tweeting that it's all right. Uh, all the talk about the president firing Robert Mueller. And uh, New York Times said it almost happened in December. And the president said, uh, no, if I wanted to fire him in December, I would have fired him in December. And reporting by the failing New York Times. God, I love that every time he does a tweet. Uh, and I think uh, my guess is uh, he probably would have fired him, but his advisors, he's actually listening to the people around him and go, Mr. President, you can't do it. Not that he doesn't deserve it, not that you don't have the power, but it's going to blow up uh, to such an extent that that's just going to stop everything else that you want to do. The optics would be so Oh, bad. it would be crazy. And in the end, uh, could he do it? Of course he could do it. Would the Republicans... Uh, not defend him, but would they uh, just be silent on it? Of course they would, uh, because they're silent about everything when it comes to a sitting president of their own party. Well, that leads us right into the next story, which is four senators, including two Republicans, who are taking this step to protect Robert Mueller's job as President Trump talks about possibly firing him. I just came in and I caught him red-handed, tangled in a web of 
where they're going with this. Maybe I'm missing something. Uh, they're offering legislation to give the special counsel a 10-day window to seek, uh, to seek expediated judicial review of a firing. Uh, I mean, the counsel can uh, do that the next day and ask for a judicial review. And where, what is the justice going to say? No, you can't fire someone that works for you in the executive branch? Now, when we talk about independence, that is simply a tradition of independence. Well, also, isn't it, and people like to to niggle about this detail, that can he directly fire Mueller oh, or does he have matter. to does he have to get Rosenstein to yeah. fire? And then if Rosenstein won't fire him, he fires Rosenstein. You know, but that's form over substance. Right. The bottom line is getting rid of Mueller. Right. And they make say and exactly. And you have the, the pundits making such a big deal for days. Well, uh, does he have the power to fire him? And Sarah Huckabee Sanders says, yes, he does have the power. Yes, he has the power. And if it's not picking up the phone and saying you're fired, a la uh, Celebrity Apprentice, uh, it's Rosenstein. You, you call Mueller and say you're fired. But then, and, and this is a technical point then, did the president fire Mueller or did Rosenstein fire Mueller? Oh, boy. Boy, that's what we're right? talking about. Yeah. Well, maybe if it's going to go to a court case, it does make a difference. I don't know. Hey, uh, as you said, uh, Mike Pompeo being grilled in front of this confirmation hearing. He, and, ju- he, just, uh, he just coughed. He did? Yeah. Oh, did he use his cough button? Uh, that's very funny. No, he just coughed oh. into, his, uh, into his hand. Well, if not being able to use a cough button qualifies you uh, to be <laughs> the Secretary of State, then you could be the Secretary of State also. <laughs> anyway, and it's everything you just said. Uh, he is going to take a harder line on Russia, which a lot of people want. They're asking him, can you be independent? I don't know why they're bothering. And I don't know. Is anything more need to be said No, no. The senators clearly, I guess, don't quite understand how all of this works. Maybe I'm missing something. Well, it's grand. It's all these hearings, the Facebook hearings with Mr. Zuckerberg, that was grandstanding. This is grandstanding. Most of these hearings are grandstanding. Yeah. That's why they're televised. Well, French President Macron says we have the proof that Syria did, in fact, use chemical weapons. Now, uh, it's fake news that they have the proof. Uh, Just ask uh, Russia and uh, President Putin and Assad. And that is, first of all, it's uh, a lie that uh, the chlorine gas was even used. There absolutely was no gassing. But if there was, we didn't do it. So there you go. And now, what is going to happen? Uh, we know that the French and the Brits and the Americans, for the most part, are having some pretty intense conversations about what to go and where. The Israelis are peripherally involved, although nobody will admit that the Israelis are part of that. And it's uh, it's surprising because uh, the president said, we're going 24 to 48 hours. Well, that passed, uh, what, yesterday, mm-hmm. day before? And nothing is being done. And if nothing is done, if there is not a substantial attack, then uh, here's what happens. Assad now has a green light that no one's going to stop him from uh, gassing his own people. Uh, Putin, who said, we will shoot down not only the missiles, but any aircraft that launch the missiles, which means manned U.S. aircraft. And Putin just is telling us what to do. He's calling the shots. Uh, Assad is going to be given the opportunity to do whatever he wants, whatever atrocities. 
And it's working, too, because the, they retook Duma. The Russian military yeah. went in there, helped him retake it, and apparently they've raised a Syrian flag in Duma. So yeah. this this uh, atrocities agenda is working for what Assad wants. And yep. while the French and the Brits are contemplating what to do about it, Angela Merkel said Germany will not participate in any military action mm. against Syria this morning. Of course not. You'd think they would be a little sensitive about gassing people, wouldn't you think? As opposed to, we're ignoring it. You go ahead and gas all you want, and we're not going to get involved. Of all of the countries. All right, we're going to come back. Uh, after the break, your chance to win $1,000. Brought to you by Cunning Dental. If you have dental problems, call Cunning Dental for a free exam. 888-640-SMILE. I walk here and here's your chance to win some cash your shot at one thousand dollars now text the keyword bank to 200 200 you'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info standard data and messaging rates apply that's bank to 200 200 if you win you're going to be notified with a phone call you need to answer that call suzanne in lancaster answered the call and won a thousand dollars there's a chance to win every monday through friday from 5 a.m to 7 p.m all right, back we go. More handle on the news, late edition, different time today because of uh, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, the interview with my dad. All right. Hey, guys, real quickly, CNN's reporting that the president has said a decision will be made soon on action in Syria. Ugh. So if anything comes across before right. the end oh, of the yeah, show, I'll let you know. So even if he says, uh, I'm making a decision uh, to make a decision, and we'll tell you whether or not a decision to decide will be given to us. Well, he's not going to tell us when he's going to do whatever he's going to do. He lambasted uh, President right. Obama it, for kind of revealing right. Except the plan. He's already said, uh, well, get ready. You know, we're ready to go. You watch our smart bombs and uh, you just giving enough time for all the Russians to bail, all the Syrians to bail. So there'll be nobody left. Now, that doesn't mean the command and control centers, of course, couldn't be attacked. But uh, I think maybe there's a, he wants a minimal uh, uh, loss of life. It plays much better internationally yeah, if it's clear that you're only going after infrastructure and not after people. All right, let's go back. Uh, more handle. We actually finish handle on the news late edition. All right. Uh, the man who admitted giving guns to those San Bernardino mass shooting terrorists wants to delay his sentencing again. It should be the fourth time. That's typical, though. Even in an ordinary case and not a big high-profile case like this, it is typical for sentencings to be continued two, three, four, five, six times. And the judges are pretty liberal about doing that? Yeah, for the most the part. Because the guy's already in jail. Right. He's going to stay there for years and years and years, so there really is no downside. No, the prosecutors don't like it. They say the defense is playing games here. But uh, this just happens all the time. I know that prosecutors want 25 years for this guy just for giving them the guns. I don't even know if this would have been a story if this guy hadn't been a teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High when the shooting took place a couple months ago. But he had his gun with him and he left it in the bathroom of a beach pier on Sunday mm. and a homeless guy grabbed the gun. Mm. Went in after him, got the gun, and then proceeded to shoot it into the wall. Mm. Now, the homeless guy appeared to be drunk during this whole thing. So the teacher goes back in, gets his gun, but both guys are arrested. 
And so the teacher, uh, one of the guys who said that he would be willing, by the way, to be armed when he went back to school, even though that hasn't happened, uh, he got, what, a $250 bond he was released on, and uh, he was charged with second-degree misdemeanor of uh, failing to safely store a firearm. All right. Mm. You know, let's arm everybody, even in public restrooms. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. You don't know what's going to happen there. You know what? Uh, Parkland shooter Nicholas Cruz... Might be a millionaire. Yeah, he may be a uh, a trust baby, which makes it uh, interesting because he now has a public defender, and if he has enough assets, he doesn't have a public defender. And they're trying to sort it out because I guess right now the records are a little murky, so they're working on trying to figure out how much in these annuities that he may have and other money in the bank that he shares with his brother. Uh, and that's right. He may end up having to hire his own guy. Well, if the teachers don't get armed with guns, how about we arm them with baseball bats? Now, at first glance, this is kind of stupid. Uh, the school district in Pennsylvania distributed a 16-inch wooden slugger bats. You know, those little, uh, this is what you get at the ballpark kind of things as a promotion. Uh, what's that going to do? But uh, actually, what it is is a reminder to teachers saying you attack. Where it used to be you just covered, you just went for cover, not if you're a teacher. Are they going to give them something they can actually use to attack? Uh, or is it just the symbolism of the I think little it's toy a sim- baseball bat? I think it's symbolism. Now, you said you can actually do something with it. Yeah, okay, sure, why not? Boy. Yeah, I know. Boy, it sounds yeah. as dumb as a bucket of rocks. Yeah. There Which you go. Also Good in, sound effect. Yes. Also in Pennsylvania, right? Isn't that where the rocks yes. are in Pennsylvania, too? I think so. Yeah. A uh, new documentary is coming out. It's called A Nightmare in Las Vegas. And yes, it's about the mass shooting there. It's made by a guy named Charlie Min. Uh, he's a former news reporter. He interviewed survivors and witnesses to make the movie. It'll be in limited release. And then I guess it'll show up at some point on Amazon Prime. Got it. All right. We are done. Now we go back to our regularly scheduled show. Not that it hasn't been regularly scheduled anyway. So, uh, green cards are impossible to get, right? Uh, Especially now under virtually all circumstances. Well, I'm going to show you, tell you about how you or someone you love or someone you know can get a green card very easily, assuming you have $500,000 in your pocket right about now. All right, Jennifer Uh, now, it's uh, Thursday. Mike Pompeo, a CIA director who's been nominated to be Secretary of State, is in front of uh, the Senate. I think Foreign Relations Committee. That's normally where uh, they sit. And uh, he is, uh, well, he's been at it all morning long. And the Republicans, of course, are throwing him softballs, and he is laughing, and they're laughing, and it's great. And uh, the Democrats, of course, going to go the other way. And, uh, of course, he will be nominated. Uh, He will be confirmed, and uh, it will be... I'm sure it's going to go down, for the most part, party lines. Except there will be some Democrats who actually pay attention to the Constitution, God forbid, where they read the part about advice and consent of the Senate and realize that advice and consent has more to do with is he qualified, is he not, this is the president's call as opposed to the Senate's call as to a man or a woman working for the President of the United States at his pleasure. 
boy, I don't know what I miss on this one. Well, yeah, I don't miss anything. It's politicizing everything uh, across the board. Okay. Now, uh, one of the, uh, of course, uh, big issues with uh, our president has been the issue of immigration. And right along with uh, the president, and uh, this was uh, one of his platforms, one of his literally pet platforms that he was uh, working on, I mean, right from day one was we have to stop immigration or we have to, let's say, stop illegal immigration. Now, what he didn't say is that legal immigration has become 10 times as hard as it used to be. There was a time when companies could sponsor uh, individuals and uh, green cards were available. Matter of fact, that's exactly what I did uh, 1991 with my partner, Karen, at the Center for Surrogate Parenting. If you need a surrogate mother, call 800-SURROGATE. And it was uh, fairly easy to do. Today, I couldn't do it. Today, it is so difficult for a sponsorship because the rules are fairly simple. And that is a company is allowed to sponsor an individual coming into the United States if the skill set that that individual has can not be met by an American. And there are very few skill sets that Americans don't have. Very few. In fact, I can't think of any. Now, in the case of Karen, it just so happened that we needed certain criterion where we had to run ads. Oh, we had to run ads in, in the paper. We had to interview people. And then in the end, we selected Karen. As a matter of fact, I don't think anybody else even answered our ad because it, our requirements were supposed so specific. I don't know if it would fly today. I don't know if today, under the same circumstances, the sponsorship would happen. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go so far as say it wouldn't. So uh, let me tell you a story uh, about a guy, uh, Ishan Khanna, who came uh, from India. And uh, he's fresh out of Loyola Marymount uh, University in L.A. Uh, he gets his degree in Applied Information Management System, which, of course, uh, guess what? You think you have enough Americans that can do that? And so he has an internship at Ticketmaster. He applies for an H-1B visa. Highly skilled workers in the field with a shortage of qualified Americans. Well, uh, yeah, give me a break. Applied information management systems, uh, those degrees are handed out every other minute. So uh, the United States said no. And he had to go home to India. And he wanted to come and live in the, uh, work here in the United States, which many, many people do. Now, I'll tell you where he scored big and where he got his lottery without the lottery. Which, incidentally, I don't think is going to be in effect anymore because 10,000 visas are given out by lottery every year. Just here, put your name in a hat. And if we pull your name, uh, you now get a visa to come to the United States. That's uh, either gone now or it soon will be gone. So his dad, who had some money, ponied up $500,000. And he put the money in a Four Seasons Resort Development in Puerto Rico. And that visa became an EB-5 visa. Now, this EB-5 program started in 1990, and the whole thing, uh, the whole purpose was to stimulate the U.S. economy through capital investment and job creation. So foreigners 
can qualify for permanent U.S. residency, read a green card, if they invest at least a million dollars in a new business venture and create 10 jobs. 10 jobs. However, if you're looking at high unemployment areas or rural areas, that drops to $500,000 where everybody goes. So it's, it's a process. Uh, you have to file a position, uh, petition uh, to uh, U.S. citizen immigration. Uh, if the petition is approved, then the investor applies to the State Department for the visa and allows uh, permanent residency uh, green card on a conditional basis. And the investment project has to meet the requirements. Uh, the investor gets a green card, and it can take up to two years. Two years, which means that no one's here in the United States. Now, even sponsorships of the kind that I did for Karen uh, today, assuming that they go through uh, and actually are able to, uh, the uh, immigrant is able to navigate the rules, take forever. I think we did it in a matter of months. And there was a temporary visa that was given uh, pending the application. Boy, are those days easy, aren't they? Man. And who do you think, what country do you think where they all come from? 82% of the applications. China. That's where it comes from. China. For a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, it's because this is opportunity, although they they are very wealthy over there, but they love the fact of having that ability to come to the United States, also Canada, incidentally, uh, the Vancouver area, and it is just gold for them. And uh, this is why we have so many clients uh, at the surrogacy center, if you need a surrogate mother, is, uh, and the reason is because when the kids are born, and this is legitimate, these are not anchor babies or any of that. I mean, they're here legitimately. And the, the baby is going to be born in the United States via surrogate mother. And the kid has an American passport. And that is gold. I mean, such gold. So since there is a huge backlog of Chinese applicants and we're talking about only 7% uh, percent of those who actually apply are getting through. Uh, the next group is from India. Now, oh, you ready for this? Uh, that employer sponsorship program now uh, is 10 years. Karen would have had to wait 10 years to get that employee sponsorship. Boy, tell me times haven't changed. So if you see uh, some rich Chinese driving around with a green card, guess what? How do you think they got in? All right, coming up, and we're going to finish it up with uh, Airbnb, which I first pronounced Arbnib. Uh, it's Airbnb. The rules are a-changing. God, it seems like a Bob Dylan song I'm about to sing. The rules, they are a-changing. And we'll finish that up right here on KFI. And there is Jennifer Jones. They are KFI handle here on a uh, Thursday, uh, April 12th. Uh, this morning, uh, in uh, remembrance of Holocaust, Holocaust Remembrance Day, I uh, replayed an interview I did with my father and the story of his survival. And that is on uh, the website, kfiam640.com, the keyword handle, uh, and it's a podcast, right? Or is just on the website? 
It will be a. It's the entire interview on there, and there's also photos of your dad. Yeah, and then photos of my dad, sort of in happy times, when he was uh, happy. All right. Also, uh, right after the top of the hour, handle on the law, marginal legal advice, and you can call eight seven seven five two zero eleven fifty and calendar that for ten minutes from now. All right. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, L.A. lawmakers uh, back some new rules tentatively. Uh, that would bar LA and uh, Angelinos or lay, uh, LAers uh, from renting out renting out a house or apartment to night to night guests if that property was not their primary residence. And why? Well, because uh, uh, there's a whole movement afoot to keep uh, the Airbnb folks uh, from it becoming a business and de facto hotels. Also. It would cap uh, the rentals at 120 days annually, but that's pretty much six months anyway. So uh, how is this happening and why? Uh, boy, is that there are two, two sides to this coin, huh? Uh, first of all, you have the hotel industry, which has been nailed by this. Uh, and you have housing activists uh, that are really upset because if you remove what otherwise would be rentals, because you can make some more money with renting out to Airbnb, what do you think are going to do? And uh, there really aren't enforceable regulations, and you have taxes that the hotel industry has to pay, which the Airbnb people don't. Uh, so there, there are some good reasons to limit Airbnb to the number of people, primary residents. And uh, a big problem is their companies come in and buy entire swaths of buildings, apartment buildings, and the whole thing is Airbnb. Now... There are also people who rent out spare bedrooms to out-of-towners coming in for, let's say, a Rams game or a graduation, and that helps cover mortgages. And under the proposed rule, someone who rents out a bedroom, a piece of property, if you will, uh, and does it fairly extensively through the year, now has to cut back. And... uh, that is, uh, that can really hurt. And so when you have people who rely on these rentals for income and help with the mortgages or an extra few dollars, uh, the argument is that, you know, come on, guys. But like anything else, you have a new model and the bugs have to be worked out. And in the case of Airbnb, I don't know if there are any bugs. It either works or it doesn't work. Now, you can regulate it. Uh, you can limit it, for example, the proposed bill, uh, 120 days. Oh, that's a lot of days anyway. 120 days uh, out of the year, and it has to be your primary residence. Because the, the concept of Airbnb when it started was renting out your place, an extra spare bedroom. Well, I, I don't know who does that anymore. Because now, my daughter, for example, uh, when she travels... Uh, she'll rent uh, with her boyfriend an Airbnb and not interested in someone's home. She wants an apartment. I mean, she doesn't want to deal with people. I'll go to hotels only because, uh, you know, I don't want someone else's cooties. Also, uh, I don't know how the TV works. I don't know how I get, I don't know how anything works. And it's a, a lot easier calling down and screaming at something, uh, you know, send up engineering to tell me how to turn this damn TV on. Hard to do with an empty Airbnb. And so, well, like Uber, taxi uh, companies, limousine companies, tell me they weren't affected by Uber. 
I mean, it's it's a new world for sure. And you also have neighbors involved. Because let's say you live in a facility. Let's say you live in an apartment and uh, someone rents out uh, an apartment to people that are there two, three days at a time, a week at a time. Well, if you're a neighbor, you've got strangers tromping through there all the time. It might as well be a crack house for all you care. You know, maybe the people are dressed a little nicer. But I wouldn't want to live in a place that uh, different people are walking in there every other day. So what are they going to do about this? Well, they're going to figure something out. I mean, they have to. And is it going to be the number of days? Probably. Uh, is it going to be the primary residence? Uh, do they go back and build a model where uh, the city really wants it to be the extra bedroom and not make it into a big business? Yeah, probably some rules and regulations there, too. So it's simply a question like anything else coming down to some kind of a compromise And I kind of like Airbnb. I really do. And, of course, the lawsuits fly all over the place anyway because, uh, like Uber, uh, any any kind of issue where someone is hurt, the liability instantly is going to attach to whoever has the money. And in this case, it's uh, this multi-billion dollar company, uh, Airbnb. Okay. Uh, We're basically done with the show. Uh, Coming up, uh, Gary and Brian Suits. And I'm assuming one, I think Gary or Brian's going to come in and uh, you never know uh, and talk about what's coming up. But while we either we wait for them or I just bail out of here, uh, uh, Handle on the Law is coming up in just a moment. And I'm giving you marginal legal advice. And I'll do that starting at the top of the hour, right through 11 o'clock, 877-520-1150, 877-520-1150. And it's marginal legal advice. And you ask marginal legal questions, I give you marginal legal advice, and it's always fun. 877-520-1150. Coming up, Gary and Shannon, actually Gary and Brian. And I think Shannon's back on Monday. I think so, after her trip uh, to Thailand. And uh, I'm not even going to make that joke right now. All right. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, when uh, we do a Friday edition of, of The Morning Show. I was about to say handle on the law, but that's coming up in just a moment. All right. This is KFI AM 640. You're still here? It's over. Go home.